Book Fourth, Chapter First, Parts One to Three of Tono Bungay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Tono Bungay by H. G. Wells. Book Fourth, Chapter First, Parts One to Three. Book the Fourth, The Aftermath of Tono Bungay, Chapter the First, The Stick of the Rocket, One. That evening I talked with my uncle in the Hardingham for the last time. The atmosphere of the place had altered quite shockingly. Instead of the crowd of importunate courtiers, there were just half a dozen uninviting men, journalists waiting for an interview. Ropper, the big commissionaire, was still there, but now, indeed, he was defending my uncle from something more than time-wasting intrusions. I found the little man alone in the inner office, pretending to work, but really brooding. He was looking yellow and deflated. "'Lord!' he said at the sight of me. "'You're lean, George. It makes that scar of yours show up.' We regarded each other gravely for a time. "'Quop!' I said is at the bottom of the Atlantic. There's some bills. We've got to pay the men. Seen the papers? Read em all in the train. At bay, he said. I been at bay for a week, yelping round me, and me facing the music. I'm feeling a bit tired. He blew and wiped his glasses. My stomach isn't what it was, he explained. One finds it these times. How did it all happen, George? Your Marconigram, it took me in the wind a bit. I told him concisely. He nodded to the paragraphs of my narrative, and at the end he poured something from a medicine bottle into a sticky little wine glass and drank it. I became aware of the presence of drugs, of three or four small bottles before him among his disorder of papers, of a faint, elusively familiar odor in the room. Yes, he said wiping his lips and recorking the bottle. You've done your best, George. The luck's been against us. He reflected, bottle in hand. Sometimes the luck goes with you, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. And then where are you? Grass in the oven. Fight or no fight? He asked a few questions, and then his thoughts came back to his own urgent affairs. I tried to get some comprehensive account of the situation from him, but he would not give it. Oh, I wish I'd had you. I wish I'd had you, George. I've had a lot on my hands. You're clear-headed at times. What has happened? Oh, boom, infernal things. Yes, but how? I'm just off the sea, remember? It'd worry me too much to tell you now. It's tied up in a skein. He muttered something to himself and mused darkly and roused himself to say, "'Besides, you'd better keep out of it. It's getting tight. Get him talking. Go down to Crest Hill and fly. That's your affair.' For a time his manner set free queer anxieties in my brain again. I will confess that that Mordet Island nightmare of mine returned, and as I looked at him his hand went out for the drug again. "'Stomach, George!' he said. I've been fighting on that. Every man fights on something. Gives way somewheres. Head, heart, liver. 
Something gives way somewhere. Napoleon did at last. All through the Waterloo campaign, his stomach. It wasn't a stomach. Worse than mine, no end. The mood of depression passed as the drug worked within him. His eyes brightened. He began to talk big. He began to dress up the situation for my eyes to recover what he had admitted to me. He put it as a retreat from Russia. There were still the chances of Leipzig. It's a battle, George. A big fight. We're fighting for millions. I've still chances. There's still a card or so. I can't tell all my plans, like speaking on the stroke. You might, I began. I can't, George. It's like asking to look at some embryo. You got to wait. I know. In a sort of way, I know. But to tell it, no. You've been away so long, and everything's got complicated. My perception of disastrous entanglements deepened with the rise of his spirits. It was evident that I could only help to tie him up in whatever net was weaving round his mind by forcing questions and explanations upon him. My thoughts flew off at another angle. "'How's Aunt Susan?' said I. I had to repeat the question. His busy, whispering lips stopped for a moment, and he answered in the note of one who repeats a formula. "'She'd like to be in the battle with me. She'd like to be here in London. But there's corners I got to turn alone.' His eye rested for a moment on the little bottle beside him, and things have happened. "'You might go down now and talk to her,' he said in a director voice. "'I shall be down tomorrow night, I think.' He looked up as though he hoped that would end our talk. "'For the weekend?' I asked. "'For the weekend. Thank God for weekends, George.' Two. My return home to Lady Grove was a very different thing from what I had anticipated when I had got out to sea with my load of quap and fancied the perfect filament was safe within my grasp. As I walked through the evening light along the downs, the summer stillness seemed like the stillness of something newly dead. There were no lurking workmen any more, no cyclists on the high road. Cessation was manifest everywhere. There had been, I learnt from my aunt, a touching and quite voluntary demonstration when the Crest Hill work had come to an end and the men had drawn their last pay. They had cheered my uncle and hooted the contractors and Lord Boom. I cannot now recall the manner in which my aunt and I greeted one another. I must have been very tired there, but whatever impression was made has gone out of my memory. But I recall very clearly how we sat at the little round table near the big window that gave on the terrace and dined and talked. I remember her talking of my uncle. She asked after him and whether he seemed well. I wish I could help, she said, but I've never helped him much. Never. His way of doing things was never mine. And since, since, since he began to get so rich, he'd kept things from me. In the old days, it was different. There he is. I don't know what he's doing. He won't have me near him. More's kept from me than anyone. The very servants won't let me know. They try and stop the worst of the papers, booms things, from coming upstairs. I suppose they've got him in a corner, George. Poor old Teddy. Poor old Adam and Eve we are. Fischl receivers with flaming swords to drive us out of our garden. I'd hoped we'd never have another trek. 
Well, anyway, it won't be Crest Hill. But it's hard on Teddy. He must be in such a mess up there. Poor old chap. I suppose we can't help him. I suppose we'd only worry him. Have some more soup, George, while there is some? The next day was one of those days of strong perception that stand out clear in one's memory when the common course of days is blurred. I can recall now the awakening in the large familiar room that was always kept for me, and how I lay staring at its chintz-covered chairs, its spaced fine furniture, its glimpse of the cedars without, and thought that all this had to end. I have never been greedy for money. I have never wanted to be rich. But I felt now an immense sense of impending deprivation. I read the newspapers after breakfast, I and my aunt together. And then I walked up to see what Cothope had done in the matter of Lord Roberts B. Never before had I appreciated so acutely the ample brightness of the Lady Grove Gardens, the dignity and wide peace of all about me. It was one of those warm mornings in late May that have won all the glory of summer without losing the gay delicacy of spring. The shrubbery was bright with laburnum and lilac. The beds swarmed with daffodils and narcissi and with lilies of the valley in the shade. I went along the well-kept paths among the rhododendra and through the private gate into the woods where the bluebells and common orchid were in profusion. Never before had I tasted so completely the fine sense of privilege and ownership. And all this has to end, I told myself. All this has to end. Neither my uncle nor I had made any provision for disaster. All we had was in the game, and I had little doubt now of the completeness of our ruin. For the first time in my life, since he had sent me that wonderful telegram of his, I had to consider that common anxiety of mankind, employment. I had to come off my magic carpet and walk once more in the world. And suddenly I found myself at the cross drives where I had seen Beatrice for the first time after so many years. It is strange, but so far as I can recollect, I had not thought of her once since I had landed at Plymouth. No doubt she had filled the background of my mind, but I do not remember one definite, clear thought. I had been intent on my uncle and the financial collapse. It came like a blow in the face now. All that, too, had to end. Suddenly I was filled with the thought of her and a great longing for her. What would she do when she realized our immense disaster? What would she do? How would she take it? It filled me with astonishment to realize how little I could tell. Should I perhaps presently happen upon her? I went on through the plantations and out upon the downs, and thence I saw Cothope with a new glider of his own design soaring downwind to my old familiar grounding place. To judge by its long rhythm, it was a very good glider. Like Cothope's cheek, thought I, to go on with the research. I wonder if he's keeping notes but all this will have to stop. He was sincerely glad to see me. It's been a rum go, he said. He had been there without wages for a month, a man forgotten in the rush of events. I just stuck on and did what I could with the stuff. I got a bit of money of my own, and I said to myself, well, here you are with the gear and no one to look after you. You won't get such a chance again, my boy, not in all your born days. Why not make what you can with it? How's Lord Roberts be? 
Calthope lifted his eyebrows. I've had to refrain, he said, but he's looking very handsome. Gods, I said, I'd like to get him up just once before we smash. You read the papers? You know we're going to smash. Oh, I read the papers. It's scandalous, sir. Such work as ours should depend on things like that. You and I ought to be under the state, sir, if you'll excuse me. Nothing to excuse, I said. I've always been a socialist, of a sort, in theory. Let's go and have a look at him. How is he? Deflated? Just about quarter full. That last oil glaze of yours holds the gas something beautiful. He's not lost a cubic meter a week. Cothope returned to socialism as we went toward the sheds. Glad to think you're a socialist, sir, he said. It's the only civilized state. I've been a socialist some years, off the clarion. It's a rotten scramble, this world. It takes the things we make and invent, and it plays the silly fool with them. We scientific people will have to take things over and stop all this financing and advertisement and that. It's too silly. It's a nuisance. Look at us. Lord Roberts B., even in his partially deflated condition in his shed, was a fine thing to stare up at. I stood side by side with Cothope, regarding him, and it was borne in upon me, more acutely than ever, that all this had to end. I had a feeling, just like the feeling of a boy who wants to do wrong, that I would use up the stuff while I had it before the creditors descended. I had a queer fancy, too, I remember, that if I could get into the air, it would advertise my return to Beatrice. "'We'll fill her,' I said concisely. "'It's all ready,' said Cothope, and added as an afterthought, "'unless they cut off the gas.' I worked and interested myself with Cothope all the morning, and for a time forgot my other troubles. But the thought of Beatrice flooded me slowly and steadily. It became an unintelligent sick longing to see her. I felt that I could not wait for the filling of Lord Roberts B., that I must hunt her up and see her soon. I got everything forward and lunched with Cothope, and then, with the feeblest excuses, left him in order to prowl down through the woods toward Bedley Corner. I became a prey to wretched hesitations and diffidence. Ought I to go near her now? I asked myself, reviewing all the social abasements of my early years. At last, about five, I called at the Dower House. I was greeted by their Charlotte, with a forbidding eye and a cold astonishment. Both Beatrice and Lady Osprey were out. There came into my head some prowling dream of meeting her. I went along the lane towards walking, the lane down which we had walked five months ago in the wind and rain. I mooned for a time in our former footsteps, then swore and turned back across the fields, and then conceived a distaste for Cothope and went downward. At last I found myself looking down on the huge abandoned masses of the Crest Hill house. That gave my mind a twist into a new channel. My uncle came uppermost again. What a strange, melancholy emptiness of intention that stricken enterprise seemed in the even evening sunlight. What vulgar magnificence and crudity and utter absurdity. It was as idiotic as the pyramids. 
I sat down on the stile, staring at it as though I had never seen that forest of scaffold poles, that waste of walls and bricks, and plaster and shaped stones, that wilderness of broken soil and wheeling tracks and dumps before. It struck me suddenly as the compactest image and sample of all that passes for progress, of all the advertisement-inflated spending, the aimless building up and pulling down, the enterprise and promise of my age. This was our fruit. This was what he had done. I and my uncle, in the fashion of our time. We were its leaders and exponents. We were the thing it most flourishingly produced. For this futility in its end, for an epoch of such futility, the solemn scroll of history had unfolded. "'Great God!' I cried. "'But is this life?' For this the armies drilled. For this the law was administered and the prisons did their duty. For this the millions toiled and perished in suffering, in order that a few of us should build palaces we never finished, make billiard-rooms under ponds run imbecile walls round irrational estates, scorch about the world in motor-cars, devise flying machines, play golf and a dozen such foolish games of ball, crowd into chattering dinner-parties, gamble and make our lives one vast dismal spectacle of witless waste. So it struck me then, and for a time I could think of no other interpretation. This was life. It came to me like a revelation, a revelation at once incredible and indisputable of the abysmal folly of our being. 3. I was roused from such thoughts by the sound of footsteps behind me. I turned half hopeful, so foolish is a lover's imagination, and stopped amazed. It was my uncle. His face was white, white as I had seen it in my dream. Hallo, I said, and stared. "'Why aren't you in London?' "'It's all up,' he said. "'Adjudicated?' "'No.' I stared at him for a moment, and then got off the stile. We stood swaying, and then came forward with a weak motion of his arms, like a man who cannot see distinctly, and caught at and leant upon the stile. For a moment we were absolutely still. He made a clumsy gesture towards the great futility below, and choked. I discovered that his face was wet with tears, that his wet glasses blinded him. He put up his little fat hand and clawed them off clumsily, felt inefficiently for his pocket-handkerchief, and then, to my horror, as he clung to me, he began to weep aloud, this little old world-worn swindler. It wasn't just sobbing or shedding tears, it was crying as a child cries. It was, oh, terrible! "'It's cruel,' he blubbered at last. "'They asked me questions. "'They kept asking me questions, George.' "'He sought for utterance and spluttered. "'The bloody bullies!' he shouted. "'The bloody bullies!' "'He ceased to weep. "'He became suddenly rapid and explanatory. "'It's not a fair game, George. "'They tire you out. "'And I'm not well. "'My stomach's all wrong. "'And I've been and got a cold.' I always been liable to cold, and this one's on my chest. And then they tell you to speak up. They bait you, and bait you, and bait you. It's torture. The strain of it. You can't remember what you said. You're bound to contradict yourself. It's like Russia, George. It isn't fair play. 
prominent man. I've been next at dinners with that chap, Neil. I've told him stories, and he's bitter. Sets out to ruin me. Don't ask a civil question, bellows. He broke down again. I've been bellowed at. I've been bullied. I've been treated like a dog. Dirty cads they are. Dirty cads. I'd rather be a three-card sharper than a barrister. I'd rather sell cat's meat in the streets. They spring things on me this morning, things I didn't expect. They rushed me. I'd got it all in my hands, and then I was jumped by Neil. Neil, I've given city tips to. Neil, I've helped Neil. I couldn't swallow a mouthful, not in the lunch hour. I couldn't face it. It's true, George, I couldn't face it. I said I'd get a bit of air and slipped out and down to the embankment and there i took a boat to richmond some id i took a rowing boat when i got there and i rowed about on the river for a bit a lot of chaps and girls there was on the bank laughing at my shirt sleeves and top hat to say they thought it was a pleasure trip fat lot of pleasure i rowed round for a bit and came in then i came on here windsor way and there they are in london doing what they like with me I don't care. But, I said, looking down at him, perplexed, it's abscondin. They'll have a warrant. I don't understand, I said. It's all up, George, all up and over. And I thought I'd live in that place, George, and die a lord. It's a great place, really, an imperial, if anyone has the sense to buy it and finish it, that terrace. I stood thinking him over. Look here, I said. What's that about a warrant? Are you sure they'll get a warrant? I'm sorry, uncle, but what have you done? Haven't I told you? Yes, but they won't do very much to you for that. They'll only bring you up for the rest of your examination. He remained silent for a time. At last he spoke, speaking with difficulty. It's worse than that. I've done something. They're bound to get it out. Practically, they have got it out. What? Writing things down. I'd done something. For the first time in his life, I believe, he felt and looked ashamed. It filled me with remorse to see him suffer so. We've all done things, I said. It's part of the game the world makes us play. If they want to arrest you, and you've got no cards in your hand, they mustn't arrest you. No, that's partly why I went to Richmond, but I never thought... His little bloodshot eyes stared at Crest Hill. That chap Whitaker Wright, he said. He had his stuff ready. I haven't. Now you got it, George. That's the sort of hole I'm in. End of Book Fourth, Chapter First, Parts One to Three Recording by William Tomko